0: This is a Clark University podcast.
1: I started really thinking about the way food invites us to think about the body. When we read literature, we often expect food to operate simply as a metaphor. But of course, it's not just a metaphor. It's also a very insistently material thing within the world of a literary text and within our own lives. It invites us to think about literary form by taking us out of literary form, in a sense. It takes us to the body, and it invites us to think about the body. It invites us to think about what feels good, what we're taught should be good, and these are questions that are central to queer studies. One of the images that I use in my book as a kind of really brief explainer of this is the idea of the child who's supposed to eat broccoli. You're at the table and you're told you're supposed to eat this thing because it's good for you. And this is a really kind of oversimplified version of a way we might think about sexuality, that you're told that being straight is being good and that some people might want different things and that it's not necessarily bad to want different things.
0: Clark English professor Elizabeth Blake is a scholar of modernism and a scholar of queer studies. When she picked up the Alice B. Toklas cookbook, Elizabeth saw an intrinsic connection between food, queerness,
1: and modernist writers. It's an astonishing document, honestly. One of the strangest books I've ever read, and I loved it. I can't prove this, but I'm pretty sure it's the first celebrity cookbook that was written by a celebrity who wasn't famous for cooking. Alice B. Toklas was famous because she was a cultural figure. She was famously Gertrude Stein's partner, though not all audiences were aware of the nature of their relationship at the time. They would have thought of her as Gertrude Stein's companion. It was written after Stein's death largely as a way to capitalize on her fame. And it's this really interesting book that's largely recipes, but also full of gossip, full of stories about artists in modernist Paris, but it's also in many ways doing a lot of theoretical work about the value of food, the value of art, and teaching us about queer life in Paris.
0: I'm Melissa Hansen, a producer in Clark's communications office, and this is Challenge Change. Queerness, modernism, and literary experimentation are terms we typically don't associate with cooking or food. But Elizabeth carved out a niche. Her research analyzes how modernist writers used food to explore human
1: relationships. I think about the way structures of nutrition and structures of heteronormativity mimic each other, and the way desires that operate outside of what we're taught is right. Whether it's nutritional or not, in food we're taught that we're supposed to eat certain things at breakfast, certain things at lunch, certain things at dinner, and these are all culturally specific. Similarly, our understanding of how sexuality operates is culturally specific and prescribed. So what I'm interested in is the way modernist writers think about transgression in terms of eating, and then that invites us to think about transgression in terms of sexuality.
0: Elizabeth says the short story Bliss by Katherine Mansfield is a perfect example. Without attention to the nuances of the story, the characters appear heteronormative. If one looks a little closer, a queer storyline
1: emerges. The story arguably about a love triangle in which a woman is having a dinner party and discovers that her husband is having an affair with one of her guests. But if we read the story carefully, it's also really clear that she's in love with the guest her husband is having an affair with, and this becomes clear partly in the way these two characters, Bertha and Pearl Fulton, interact about food. There's a long glance that they share over the beautiful red soup, which as readers, we kind of immediately recognize as tomato soup, but Mansfield lets it feel like something more elevated. The crowning scene of their romance is looking at a pear tree and having a conversation. The narrative doesn't tell us if it happens or if it's just imagined, but they're gazing at this thing that is edible and voluptuous and beautiful in the garden and sharing an experience of reacting to it, which I think of as an experience of taste without judgment. They're not judging, they're simply enjoying. So these shared experiences of pleasure have a very queer charge and make it evident that there is a romance here that's, that's not the, the sort of banal fact of the husband having the affair, but is much more complex. And it requires attending to the food to see the queerness there. Elizabeth started
0: examining texts through this framework 10 years ago and brings this lens to her food and literature course at Clark. Her new book, Edible Arrangements, Modernism's Queer Forms, is the first scholarly monograph to combine queer theory, modernist studies, and food studies.
1: The book is based on my dissertation, which really started with Toklas. When you're writing a dissertation, you have to convince your dissertation committee members, including your advisor, that that your fields go together. And so when I started this project about 10 years ago now, it wasn't, shall we say, obvious that these fields fit together to anyone but me. And it seemed very clear to me. The process was about finding texts that helped me build out a structure of thought, that helped me see how writers in the early 20th century were using food to think about queerness, using queerness to think about food also. So I really had to make a case for that and make a case for the fact that there was something more expansive to be said about that. I end the book with a short coda on William Carlos Williams and his poem about plums, This Is Just To Say, which is probably the most famous poem about plums there is. It's a poem about a man who is eating the groceries his wife has brought and picked out and is probably saving. Here's
0: Penny Amara, a Clark senior and English major, reading This Is Just To Say by William Carlos Williams. I have eaten the plums that were in the icebox, and which you were probably saving for breakfast. Forgive me, they were delicious, so sweet and so cold.
1: Infuriating, right? Yeah, I was just thinking <laughs> you feel a little bit of rage when you read a poem. Oh, absolutely. Yes, a little bit of rage, but also a little bit of like, I want to do that. I end the book by talking about how it doesn't belong in the project, but how the ways that I'm thinking might nonetheless help us read this poem. It's not a celebration of queer pleasure. It's thinking very much about domestic landscapes. To my mind, what's exciting about thinking food and sexuality together is that even though this is, right, an incredibly heteronormative poem, my methods are also useful here.
0: Cookbooks can simply be vessels for ingredients and instructions. But with some creativity, authors can make their recipes feel like a
1: collaborative activity. So a recipe actually can't be copyrighted. But what can be copyrighted is the story that precedes a recipe. But there's also a long history of cookbooks including this kind of information as a way of making cooking participatory. And this is something that scholars in literary food studies have written about quite a bit, about the ways in which the design of a cookbook produces a kind of collaborative space of readership, in that readers are invited to partake and to imagine themselves as part of a community with the cookbook author, with other people who are cooking this recipe. For your contemporary context, maybe something like the comment section on a blog. And this is so interesting, right, because it allows the possibility that our personal taste is important here, right? That there's not just one true chocolate cake. To imagine that there isn't a best recipe, and that readers could be part of who's producing this text and who's helping make the decisions about what belongs here.
0: Cooking can be an unpleasant chore for reasons rooted in personal preference or the pursuit of gender equality. Social media like Instagram and TikTok, however, are creating more ways for food to be about
1: fun. There's a really long history of feminist arguments about domestic labor and who does the cooking in a home and who does the eating in a home and how those two things don't line up. So the course is cross-listed with both English and women's and gender studies. So we read a lot from that history of feminist thinking. We in the class read a lot, and I, you know, you're both nodding. We know that it's more historically the case that women have been taught to cook as a necessary skill than men have, and men have had access to things like fun cooking, right? Like men get to grill, <laughs> women don't get to grill. And professional cooking is more often the domain of men, that most professional chefs are men. So I'm all for leveling the playing field in all of those ways. But also, what's wrong with it being fun? That's exciting. It should be able to be fun for everyone. And that can make something that has been a chore potentially something enjoyable. At the same time, I don't want to erase the fact that it has been and is a chore, right? This is one of the really tricky things about thinking in feminist and queer ways about the histories of labor related to food, that we have to recognize that cooking is labor. And it's not always going to be fun. But ideally, we should make it as fun as we can, given that we have to do it.
0: To learn more about English at Clark, visit clarku.edu English. Challenge Change is produced by Andrew Hart and Melissa Hansen for Clark University. Find other episodes wherever you listen to podcasts. One, two, three. Clark!